Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon. The unique blend of hunting, conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle, delivered in an entertaining, informative fashion that only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC's Campfires is brought to you by DSC, Conservation, Education, and Hunter Advocacy. Hornady, Accurate, Deadly, Dependable. Trigicon, Brilliant Aiming Solutions. Taurus, Makers of the Raging Hunter Handgun. Burnham Brothers Game Calls, Double Nickel Taxidermy. Now here's your host, Larry Wysoon. Thank you, David Fox, and welcome to another episode of DSC's Campfires. This one is going to be a little bit different in several different ways. I recently had a chance to talk to the agribusiness graduate students at Texas A&M University. Brandon Houston and I were invited to speak to them about a little bit of everything having to do with wildlife, but also kind of covering some business things. And what I was able to do is to be able to record what questions and answers and all those other kind of things that that Brandon and I were able to uh, to talk to this group about. But but before we get started with that, I want to remind you of Hayden Outdoors, the brand that sells land. So these guys are so great in being able to work with landowners, both those who are selling them and those potential landowners. They know wildlife, they know the land, and they're just the best in the business. And very graciously, they are doing what we call the Conservation Today segment. So before we really get started into today's, which is a recording of that recent time that we had at Texas A&M University, Brandon and I, let's get a few words from Hayden Outdoors. So if you could buy a hunting ranch, all the state's laws are different. Some places, as I understand it, there can actually be properties that are landlocked. In Colorado, if you buy a place, they're generally guaranteed access to that property. But in some states, I've heard that there could be landlocked piece of property 
And if you purchase those without doing your homework, you might be buying an helicopter to get in and to actually hunt your place. And that wouldn't be much fun. You know, one thing I've found doing this uh, real estate business is a lot of times people come out with an idea of what they can afford and it turns out they get less than they wanted. And with a smaller piece of property, especially if you're talking about deer and elk out west, unless you're bordering a lot of national forest, you're right in a migration route, it takes a little bit bigger piece to really be practical to have good success on. But what I have found, it's worked for guys a lot of times, usually there's four or five guys that will do that western trip. Uh, they may be done it for years together. Sometimes you can pool your resources and come up with a deal where three or four guys can come up with a big enough piece of ground that it's really good. And with Colorado, for instance, you've got an archery season and three or four rifle seasons. So even if they don't go all, all at the same time, they can utilize that property and, and get a big enough piece of property where they're going to have deer and elk. You know, one mistake I see people make a lot of times when they're looking at properties is they'll, they'll buy a piece of property wanting to put a lodge on it or a cabin, a place to stay while they're actually hunting. And they won't consider where the power is, the water is, if they could get a well in a certain spot. And they end up building right in the middle of their property or at the back side of their property where they've got to go completely through the property to get to the, to the place they're going to stay. So it's always a great idea when you get a piece of property, make sure that there's a place that you can access from the outside that's not going to affect the hunting on the inside. Because a lot of species, you know, whitetails might just run off and get in the brush, let you drive through, and then come back out and be huntable that afternoon. But something like elk, if you run through the herd of elk, they're going to probably leave the place unless it's a giant property. So you want to get a place where you can set up, do your camping, have your homestead, your cabin, your lodge, where you can get into it without affecting the hunting part of the property. That's going to make a big difference. Once you get there, if you've got to go through your elk to get to your cabin, you might not see them the rest of the week. So do yourself a favor. Make sure you find a property that you can get the cabin or house built on where it's not going to affect the hunting. Thank you so very much. There's so much advice that these guys can give that's sound advice based upon many years of experience in terms of a lot of these guys are biologists. They're all hunters and outdoors people. They love the outdoors. They love the land. And any questions that you might have regarding to wanting to sell land or, for that matter, to buy land as well, please get in touch with them. That's HaydenOutdoors.com. And you'll be so very glad you did. They're just the best there are in the industry as far as I'm concerned, based on a lot of years of experience of dealing with with landowners as well too so let's get on with today's program how many deer should i have on my property some people want to know what about the habitat they have what is good what do i need to do what are should i fertilize should we you know fallow this you know we come in and we evaluate that and we help them take those steps that may be beyond their experience level and knowledge level to go to that next step I'm so sorry. I've got so many questions because this is up on a wheelhouse. Okay, so you said that um, you said that you would either help consult them, turn it into a business, or there was something else you said. Their per personal hobby. Most people that reach out to us, it's not necessarily a business. They just they want to see bigger deer, or they want a, a better habitat, or they want to advance, you know, their quail population, or they want to advance their turkey population. And we go and we help them do that. you help people gain wildlife exemptions? Yes, sir, we do. There's a wildlife exemption? Yes, ma'am. Can you explain that? <laughs> it, it's a, it is a wildlife exemption kind of thing. They, if you have agricultural property out in the rural areas, you're taxed upon that property as either as an ag exemption or a wildlife exemption, which gives you the same exemptions that you would if you're doing a cattle operation, farming operation, as opposed to a recreation or a home site uh, 
like if you if you own a home, uh, you know that property taxes can be substantial. Well, uh, my little place that I own is about one thirtieth I pay on taxes on it because it's under a wall-up extension. It used to be under an extension where we ran cattle. But uh, I can tell you that uh, there's great advantages to having an ag exemption if you have property out in the country from a financial perspective. What are some key differences in having an ag, ag exemption as opposed to a wildlife exemption? With the ag exemption, in most counties, there are, re are requirements that you have to run so many animal units based upon the acreage that you have or it's a crop situation. With the uh, wildlife exemption, you're doing, you set up a wildlife management program with certain goals in mind and certain ways to get there, and you follow those, and you don't have to run wild, run cattle. Uh, but that said, a lot of times, some of the wildlife programs that we deal with, to me, cattle have play a very important part to keep the vegetation down in terms of grass cover. Too much grass cover becomes a monoculture, and that turns into basically a monoculture as far as animals are concerned. So you utilize the cattle to reduce the, the grass crop that's there and also have some hoof action which allows percolation of water into the soil and also helps that seed that drops to that where that cow steps to uh, kind of create a seed bed. But basically it comes down to having an ag exemption that means you're going to have cattle, you're going to have sheep, you're going to have goats, you're going to have hogs, you're going to have horses or a crop situation and a wildlife situation you do not have to have the uh, livestock or the, the row crop farming. Yes, sir. Does H3 currently have any um, workings with real estate companies like Mossy Oak Properties or other wildlife? We've had a couple reach out to us. Um, it is something we're entertaining. You know, because of the evaluation side, you know, there's a, a lot of people, if you're, if that's kind of what you're pursuing, you know, a lot of people right now are buying ranches because of hunting. And so, you know, not everybody's knowledge level is to be able to look at a raw piece of land and go, is this a good purchase? And so, Probably in the last 30 days, it's been a, a major increase. I've talked to quite a few guys with Whitetail Properties. Um, I've had one guy reach out with Mossy Oak. Yes, um, a lot of them have been independents. Uh, a couple guys through Texas Ranch Sales. Um, but, uh, but a lot of it's kind of independent. You know, they're kind of their own deal, and, and they're looking for somebody to network with. And so I think that's a, a good source for H3 and for them as well to be able to offer that hand-in-hand hand with their client and, and just serve them in, in a better way. You know, being able to, a, a guy comes to you and says, hey, I want to buy a property and we're going to, we want to hunt on it. That's the predominant use. They can utilize us to be able to be a resource to say, this is a good purchase. This are things you can do. There's some reasons to be aligned with a particular company. I do a fair amount with Hayden Outdoors, which is, oh my God, their land sales are unbelievable. And there are a few others. But uh, to me, the good thing is, is, you want to be careful who you align yourself with as an, as, as from a business perspective. I'd rather work with 10 different real estate companies than one, yes. even though we have great relationships with, with several of those companies. So there's an advantage not to be directly aligned with one company. Yes, sir. So is there kind of like a radius of clients you'll serve or just anybody who calls? It's, it's not anybody. You know, to me, and, and Larry agrees with this, what somebody wants and what they're able to do or willing to do are two completely different things. Not in, in every piece of property we step on, there's differences in what we have to do. You know, 
if we give a recommendation of something that needs to be done and they're not willing to do it or they can't do it, you know, all we're going to do is just keep turning that wheel. It's, it's ne we're never going to be able to take those steps forward. So a lot of times what we do when somebody calls is we do a property evaluation. We go out, meet them face-to-face, -face, walk the property, tour it, drive every square inch of it as we can. And during that time, we're gauging what is their interaction with the property. You know, and, and, and in some situations, they're like, I'm completely hands-off. I don't live anywhere near it. I want you to do everything from the get-go. And as long as we know that, then we're, then we're good. But to work with a client that says, you know, I, w w this is the goal I want to achieve, and we, we put it in place for them to achieve it, and they're just not doing it, it's, it's not worth, it's not really worth doing that. you got to be honest with people. You know, you have somebody come to you and says, I want to do this, this, and this, and the how many acres do you have? We've got 20. Well, 20 acres is a nice little piece of chunk of country, but it's not going to be able to do everything that this person may want to do. Or the habitat or the rainfall in certain areas, and there's no irrigation there. They go, we want to set up food plots. And you go, uh, what's your annual rainfall? And they go, six inches a year. How deep is your water? Well, we don't really have any water underneath us, so we can't do any irrigation. Well, a food plot then becomes a feed trough because if that's what they really want to do, if they want to increase the nutrition on the place. This is going to sound like ego, guys. I don't mean to be this way. It's not at all. My background is as a wildlife biologist. I spent years with the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department doing research on everything from alligators to desert bighorn sheep. My last job with the TPWD was the technical assistance biologist for South Texas. I covered the area from Victoria to San Antonio to Del Rio. And everything south of that area and other parts of the area, I've worked with landowners and hunter groups to set up management programs for white-tailed deer, for non-game species, for the habitat. So we start at the ground level and go up. When I quit there, I set up my own consulting service. And over the years, I've established management programs here in Texas on about eight, nine million acres, probably another eight or nine million acres on different, in different parts of the world. So I've had the opportunity to do a whole lot of things along the way. I've, I've served as an outdoor writer for a long time. I've probably done about 5,000 feature articles. I've been involved in outdoor television for since the 1980s. Uh, I still continue doing all those things. The opportunity for me to work with, with, uh, with Brandon gave me the opportunity to go back to some of my roots as far as I was concerned, but to also draw upon the experiences that I've had in all those years, looking at all kinds of different wildlife management programs, all kinds of different habitats, not just here in North America, but across the world. So that's one of the things that makes H3 special. Uh, I've been involved in different businesses, the Los Calidores Deer Hunting Contest. I've owned restaurants. I've owned bars. Still own two bars. By the way, if y'all are age, I will say this. We have a bar in LaGrange, Texas called the Crown Bar right off the <laughs> off the uh, Courthouse Square. We're about to open one in Round Top starting on the 19th as well, too. So uh, to me, you have to learn to, to diversify in terms of business, in terms of moving forward. Uh, when I started writing, I, people asked me, said, what'd you write? What, what'd you use? And I said, a big, I had a big chief tablet. Y'all know what a big chief tablet is? No. Okay. If somebody says, yeah, well, it, it's a line sheets of paper about yay wide by so big, had a red cover, had an Indian chief on it, and it was that and a pen. That's how I started writing. And you transferred that to writing on a typewriter to where you had a whole lot of whiteout, which was so you could correct your mistakes. And that went on to now these days, I still I do a lot of writing every year. 
I do a lot of different blogs. I work with a lot of different companies, and I do probably about 40 blogs a month. So, but all now that is done on amazing. You know, same thing with cameras. It's, it's been interesting to see the difference in cameras when we used to go on hunts and you take a 35 millimeter camera, hand it to the guy, and you draw a picture and say, okay, this is what I want. You have to send the film back in, and then it'd be another two weeks where you got it, and every one of your faces would have cut off like this. And out of 36 exposures, you might get one photograph. It's become a lot easier to do what I do, and it's become a lot easier in terms of wildlife management in terms of business as well. But you have to learn to adapt. You have to learn to continue to learn how to adapt, learn new techniques, uh, learn from your mistakes. It's fine to repeat a mistake once. Don't ever repeat a mistake twice. Kind of thing. So there's a lot to draw from here. So I'll turn it back over to uh, to Brandon. But I'll say that working with Brandon in the H3 Whitetail Solution, I found somebody that I have tremendous faith in, that I truly enjoy his company because of his knowledge and because of his passion. When it comes to business, regardless of what you go into, uh, there has to be passion there as well, too. Now, questions. So, well, let me, I'll, 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 let him, I'll let him a little finish. bit further on yours, but since Larry kind of went off and explained his back back history, let me ask this question. Does anybody know who he is before he got here? When he got here, did you know who he was? Well, I know you. <laughs> Nobody else? One question I've known for a lot of years. Thankfully, and so, let, let, me, let, me, let me explain who Larry is, okay? Larry is one of the guys, a very small hand group of guys that started outdoor television. Back, you know, all the hunting shows that you see now, he is one of the, what I consider the pioneer. Back when he tells a story, they were carrying around 200 pounds of camera equipment just to film one show. It's nothing like what it is. Of course, his background is a mess. Yeah. His background is wildlife biologist. He's been on television my whole life. And so, how Larry became involved in this is I was kind of like a 16-year-old girl at a Jonas Brothers concert. That's who Larry <laughs> Larry Watson was, was the Jonas Brothers to me, okay? And so when I was growing up, I remember, I've told the story a hundred times, I used to get my mom and dad to take me to the grocery store. And in the grocery store, I don't know if they have them now, because you can do it on your phone, but they used to have a magazine rack. And, you know, we didn't have, there was no outdoor television. There was no YouTube. They didn't even have the internet really then. I think we were on Macintoshes. Yeah. Anyways, um, so I would get every magazine I could that I knew Larry wrote in. I'd take it home and I'd get my mom and dad to read it to me because I was too young to read. I just, if I could find his picture or I knew what his name looked like, I would get him. And I'd get my mom and dad to read them to me. And then we'd get into VHSs and here he came. And so I followed him my whole life. When I got... When I got into high school, I got a football scholarship to Texas Tech, and which didn't last very long because I didn't give a crap about football. Uh, I liked to hunt, and I went in, and I didn't know anything. I didn't even know what a wildlife biologist was. I knew one thing. Larry kept saying that thing, wildlife biologist. So I went in, and I signed up to be a wildlife biologist, not even knowing what I was getting into, with one goal in mind, and that was I wanted to be a celebrity on TV. And as I got older and realized that, you know, there's a lot more to that than most people realize. I really jumped into the wild biology side. But when, when I went into school, there was we, we weren't riddled with the, the supplemental feeding that we are today. And so in those days, 
you were forced to focus on what this industry and what this world has steered away from, which is the, the habitat. You know, that's what they depend upon. And, and that is probably one of the biggest glues that bonded Larry and I together in the, in the very beginning was I have probably a little bit older school beliefs when it comes to management and habitat. Um, I believe in looking at the habitat. I don't believe in, uh, we're, we're going to buy double down, we're going to buy this, we're going to buy that. No. And when I started explaining that to Larry, it, you could just, it was, that, that's, how, that, that's his era. That's what it is. That's the facts. That's how you do it. And so, um, to kind of backtrack a little bit, I, I spent 32, 33 years in even idolizing Larry and following Larry and still to this day. I never not want to, I told him, he, he laughs when I tell him this, but I think in my life I, I typed up, when emails came on, I think I typed up five emails and would just never push send. I had like 500 chances to go to places he was speaking. Even when I was in college, there was a couple times I believe he spoke here where I could have come and li- and I would never do it. I never wanted to meet him and be considered a kid. I always wanted to be a man. I wanted, I wanted to be able to impress him. And so fast forward, um, I really got a passion for educating people. That, that's what I love the most. And, and, and you, you get on, and Larry talks about outdoor writing, and he's done a tremendous amount of it. I, I've, he's kind of gotten me into it, and, and I'm just now dabbling into it. But one of the things that stimulated me from taking this as a hobby and friends and family to a business and going on a larger scale was if you simply get on the Internet and you Google how to grow bigger horns with minerals, what you end up finding is either an article written by a PhD or a research lab that your average guy cannot understand. You know, I may be able to use some of that terminology and, you, and some of you in here will understand it. But your average person or a new person will not understand what they're talking about. Or you find an article that starts with facts and next thing you know, the guy who doesn't know, he's being read an article that's being paid for by a company. Okay, so he's buying a product that's got... 85% sodium in it. Well, you can't figure out why the beer won't touch it, why it's not doing what it's showing. I wanted to create a platform to be able to go from point A to the end and speak in what I like to call 101, elementary terms, and teach people to where an ecologist or a, bi- a biologist or a PhD or somebody with a master's degree could sit there and go, I understand that. But the, the guy or the girl who's just now getting into it can also understand it. And so so backing up a little bit, I got the opportunity to be sponsored by a company called TRHP Outdoors. And I met a lady named Stephanie Murphy who is Larry's pretty much Larry's right hand. And I unbeknownst to me, when I accepted, I learned real quick that Larry's face was all over every every single product. And I'm like, wow, interesting. And so it, I built a relationship with her and talking to her, and, and um, every time I talked to her, I asked, well, how's Larry doing? What's going on? You know, just hoping. I'm, I'm, I'm a man now. I want that chance. I'm ready to shake his hand. And so hoping one of these days it's going to line me up. I mean, I remember the first time she sent an email to all the elite pro staff, and Larry was on it. He responded, and I almost wrecked my truck. I'm like, hey, that's on my phone. You know, that's not a screenshot. That's... And so last Thanksgiving, I got a phone call from her. The day before Thanksgiving, she was calling. We were talking about something. And, and like I ended every phone call, she said, I said, how's Larry doing? 
And she said, well, she's not doing very good. He said, season's been hard. Normally he's killed, you know, six or seven bucks by this time. He hadn't even shot a deer yet. And so me, you know, my head just went, blew up. And I said, well, you tell Larry, I said, if he wants to kill a deer, he can come to my ranch. I'll put him on one. Thinking I'm just throwing stuff at the wall. It's never going to stick. I, never, I mean, it's Larry Washington, for Christ's sake. I never going to hear from him. I got a phone call an hour later. She said, he wants to know if December works. I didn't need anything on Thanksgiving. <laughs> I was sick. And then we get to the time where he's coming out there, and I, I tried to hold down my breakfast, lunch, and dinner for two days straight. And gets out there, and we hit it off. And then that's when we figured out that when I started talking about habitat, and he was talking, you know, what you see on TV is a lot, a lot of times not what you get in real life. So I didn't know if I'd idolized somebody for 30-something years that it was going to be completely opposite. I get out there, and he was the opposite. He was way better. And so H3 was, I had just formed the LLC and was in the process of building the website. I was already getting people calling and asking me questions and people wanting um, to, to, to talk about consulting in different manners on their property. And next thing I know, I'm sitting there and Larry Weissman's now a partner and I'm getting to bounce stuff off the person who's inspired me from the get-go. But to speak to your question, every person's different, every ranch is different, and everybody's wants are different. But like he said, setting clear expectations. A lot of people, they'll buy a 30 or 40 acre piece of property, and they'll call and go, I want 200 inch deer. Okay, you high fence? Nope. Is it, is it really, is that really ever going to happen? Maybe. It's possible. But I want to shoot a 200 inch deer, free range, native, every single year. I'm never going to be able to fill those shoes. And more than likely, nobody is. Best advice I can give you, turn off the TV and get off the internet. Let's, let's build what you can. But if they're not willing to come off those expectations of what, what is faith and what is reality, all we're going to do is set ourselves up for failure and never perform to their level. And, and I want to perform to everybody's level. But it starts with a foundation of, rea- of, of reality, of what the property can do and what the area has. We'll come off of that. How many of y'all have a flower pot or have a flower where you live? Everybody. You're wildlife manager. You contribute to wildlife in so many different ways when you do that. We're talking about huge acreages here, but to be very frank with you, if you have vegetation of any sort that grows in your backyard or flowers, you're contributing to wildlife. So it's amazing what you can do, even on the small acreage, or what you can do. You know, bees are absolutely so important to this world. If we don't have bees, we're in serious trouble. You think they're having trouble over across the water? Uh, not compared to what we do if we didn't have any bees or any pollinators. So if you can plant something that that uh, that bees have to put, be able to pull nectar or pollen off of to create honey and to fertilize that plant, that which is going to produce some vegetation, maybe that a, that a uh, some kind of worm eats it. Well, it turns into maybe it turns into a monarch butterfly or a moth or something. So whether you realize it or not, when you get down to the very basics, anybody that has any kind of flowers or, or trees or anything in their backyard or in their house or even sitting if you're in an apartment and you've got a little planter box that you have out on the back little deck area, you could you play an important role as far as wildlife is concerned. And that's that, that's also something we we do as well when we're evaluating habitat is is can we implement to 
plant pollinate po- pollinating plants because, like you said, bees are, are very very important, and they really really do help the ecosystem, and they and they can change a, a tremendous amount in that ecosystem of a particular piece of property just by giving them the ability to pollinate there, and that's a that's kind of a, a little inside deal that a lot of people don't realize. I've seen crops not yield anything. Come in, plant pollinators, bring in hives, and that crop will, I mean, like, like it's just the most beautiful field in the Midwest. They, you know, it, it, to us, it's about the entire ecosystem. It's not just the deer. It's not just the forbs. It's not just the browse. It's everything. You know, a lot of times we, we catch people, they're like, huh? Because Larry says it all the time. I say it. It's everything from the deer down to the livestock all the way down to the birds and the bugs that walk on the soil. We want to advance all of that, not just one thing. But the good part is when you are trying to advance one thing, you end up advancing way more. You know, if, if I could go back and do it, if I could get back in your shoes, I probably would have finished my wildlife biology, but I would have spent more time on the ecology side of it. I didn't realize that 90% of what I'm going to do is actually ecology. You know, plant ID and, and, and stuff like that. I wish I spent more time on it, but... Um, it's incredible how one little bitty thing can make such a big stride when it comes to habitat and wildlife. Got another question for you. How many of y'all like people? How many of y'all want to be around people? What business are you in? What business are you going to go in? What business is there that you're not going to be dealing with people? You know, to me, I, I love the opportunity to talk to people like y'all and to be out and be around and visit with people. But I get tickled because years ago when I was here, I counseled a lot of different wildlife students, or a lot of students, if you will. I had a crew of about 12 to 20 students that worked for me every day. And I used to get so tickled because they were in wildlife, they'd come to me and say, why are you in, why are you in wildlife? And they go, well, I like to hunt and fish. And I said, do you like people? And they go, no, and I said, well, let's go talk to your advisor. You need to switch because when it comes to wildlife or really any other kind of business, whether it's a retail business, whether it's a, a, a name the business, it's a people business. You have to learn how to deal with people if you don't already need it, already do so. Communication becomes so very important. Uh, I used to, dear years ago, I'd ask people when they came in uh, what they wanted to do and all that kind of stuff and I'd say, okay uh, tell you what we're going to do, I'll hire you for a week, you'll be on for a week I want you to go build a fence in, out at the, our deer pens around the vet and I said, I'll provide you with the, the wire the, the post, the post hole digger by hand the staples and I said, it doesn't need to be very long and I said, but it needs to be straight and you need to have at least five or six posts. And they go, what in the world? Why that? And I said, because those are the basic things. A lot of times when it came down to somebody getting hired, it came down to once they got out of A&M, what, when it came down to being hired is what kind of practical skills do they have? Do they know how to drive a tractor? Do they know how to do, drive a bulldozer in some instance? You know, there's so many different things. And to me, it comes back to this adapting and being diversified. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I own businesses. I also carry out the trash in all those businesses. I sweep the floors, you know, and I've had, I've had to deal with personnel. Brandon and his family owns a, a, a pest control company that's one of the most successful pest control companies in, in the state. 
and they do a lot of different business with TPWD. They're getting ready to do a bunch of work here in College Station as well, too. And they, through his dad and with Brandon and the people that they have working for him, they've learned to adapt to what the, to different changes. And to me, that's, that's why I went back a while ago and I talked about the Red Chief tablet and these days working on a computer rather than sending stuff through the mail and just go clicking it's there. You know, you have to learn to adapt. You have to learn, continue to learn the new technologies. At my stage of my life, do I want to learn something else? Heavens no. I want to, have, I want to know how to do it, you know. Punch me with a needle that says, okay, now you can do that kind of stuff. But uh, you have to continually learn to adapt. We, we've been doing all the talking at this point. Okay, it's y'all's turn. Who's, who's up next? What question? And anything is, there, there are no bounds here, folks. So, yes, sir. Well, my folks are from Round Top, so uh, whenever you said that you're opening. Okay, we're going to be over at the halls. It's going to be called the crown, the crown Bar at the Halls, which is on the south side of the road there. Uh, okay. Uh, but also, I've seen a lot of stuff about uh, rebuilding elk habitat in the state of Texas. y'all do any work on, uh, on elk habitat? We're not dealing with anybody right now, but I've dealt with a lot of that in West Texas years ago. Elk in Texas are considered an exotic. So even though they were endemic in, in the western part of the state, to this day they're still considered an exotic, which means they can be hunted any time of the year. Uh, the elk populations in far west Texas are growing. There are certain concerns as to people would like to have them be game animals. Probably one of the reasons that they're not game animals is because elk are great competitors with mule deer and often with desert bighorn sheep and they'll take over a water hole, kind of like wild horses do. Wild horses and wild donkeys are the scourge of the West, as far as I'm concerned. Would I love to see them there? Yes, but in much smaller numbers. But elk will a lot of times do the same things in hard times because they're taller, they can reach down and grab something on the ground, and they can reach up a whole lot higher than what the mule deer or the uh, desert bighorns can do in terms of the food. So the reason, the primary reason that I see that they're not game animals is the fact that uh, they can be removed if they become a serious problem without having had special seasons or that kind of thing. But yes, the, the elk habitat, I've done a lot of elk habitat work up in uh, different parts of Colorado and New Mexico as well too. And we've created, uh, by doing certain burns, by creating water, uh, one of the ways we used to create water sources up in the northwest part of Colorado, like up above Dinosaur National Monument area, is dig a shallow hole, enough uh, where there was some water drainage coming into it, and we would fill it up with stock salt to where the stock salt was about an inch thick. And what that did is that basically it pulled a lot of animals in, the cattle and the elk and the deer and whatever else was there for the salt. they defecate there while they were there, and that created, over a period of time, seal so that the water would stay. So there, there are little things like that that we've done. Uh, burns in certain situations, uh, plantings of, of, uh, of additional browse species and all those kind of things. There, there are certain things in certain areas that, that the animals, that those elk may really love. Uh, elk sometimes can be also very migratory. Uh, you know, as can the mule deer farther west and farther north. Here in Texas we have migratory mule deer that walk from here to that corner kind of thing. They really don't have to go that far because their habitat is very similar and they don't have to deal with the heavy snows and that kind of thing. So, But yeah, we've done a little, I've done a little work with it and I suspect in the near future we'll probably be doing some work out in West Texas with elk as well. 
They're really starting to move into the Edward Plateau pretty good. Oh, yeah. We got a call, or an inquiry, I'm sorry, an inquiry the other day about it. Guys looking to buy a piece of property in Edward Plateau. He sent it to me, and I mean, every one of the marketing photos from the realtor was, was elk, 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 elk. I mean, and, and, and I've looked at a couple other pieces of property out there personally to buy, and, and there's a lot of elk out there. How far east is that? What was that town? Um, I don't know. I'll pull it up on my phone and let you know when we're done. I, I, I can't. I can think of the name of the town, but there are elk scattered pretty much over East Texas, Central Texas, South Texas, North Texas, the Transpacus. Uh, on you know, a lot of them were initially in high fence areas, but uh, fences break down sometimes, and so they're they're free range animals scattered throughout, particularly much of the hill country, to where. And that's an interesting thing because we now have populations of certain species here in Texas that are no longer viable populations in Africa and Europe and, and Asia as well, too. So a lot of times we have actually, through various organizations and private individuals, have trapped animals here and sent them back to their native homeland where they were endemic to try to reestablish those populations there. The reason the hunting landowners were able to do that is because of the hunting that they had, because hunting paid for keeping those animals on their property. If you love wildlife, the one thing I will tell you, uh, if, 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 I've spent a lot of time in Africa. I've spent a lot of time in Europe. I've spent a lot of time in a lot of other places as well, too. And whenever you remove that economic incentive of hunting, you destroy the wildlife that's there. The only reason we have elephants and... and uh, African lion still is in a lot of places in Africa is because the hunting, because were it not for the hunting and the income that goes to the local people that uh, are there on a daily basis. I've taken, I've shot elephant. The elephant that I shot was breaking down houses. It was, it was stepping on people. It was turning over cars. It was doing all kinds of things. It was eating the crops. A lot of those places over there. It's easy for us to look at from here to there and go, oh, God, they shouldn't be doing this. Well, if, if you've got a garden that's the size of this table area right here, and your family and you, your livelihood of making it through the year depends upon producing in that little garden. How are you going to feel about the elephant that comes in, trample, eats everything, tramples up, knocks your house down? Are you going to look at it like the guys do in, in Los Angeles and go, for the elephant kind of thing? Uh, it's, it's a different world. Uh, so anyway, if there's no hunting, I can tell you, we'll have a few coyotes and probably not a whole lot of them, a few grasshoppers, a few rattlesnakes, maybe, you know, kind of thing. But uh, if, you, if you love wildlife, the people need to be by hunting license, supporting hunting in every way they can. If you don't, you can kiss wildlife goodbye. You can kiss your Sunday drives. And through the country, seeing pretty deer running around, nice and healthy, and those fawns bouncing around, you can kiss that goodbye too. Yeah. Because they'll overpopulate, they'll be disease ridden, they'll be running everywhere, dying everywhere, and that you know you're just you're destroying, detrimentally destroying the ecosystem. Yeah, you destroy the habitat. Everything. Animal populations can bounce up very quickly. Habitat takes years and years and years and years and years and years, and it goes on and on and on to re replenish itself. So. Uh, you know, something to consider. And we have we have evaluated properties. We just did one recently where the guy at the end of the, of the conversation said, what, what's, your, what's your assessment? And we looked him square in his eyes, said, remove every animal off this property and don't, don't touch it for two years. Because it had just been, I mean, it was about as beneficial as that tabletop right there to those, those animals. 
The Browns line, the Browns line was higher than I can reach, and it was there was nothing, nothing grew. I mean, if it began to sprout, it was nipped off that quick. There, there, there was nothing to yield for that property. They take everything off and and just just let it regrow. And so with that guy, of course, he can't do that. And so that, that's the type of things is, is the reality versus what they what they want. Then it becomes business decisions. Some investments are good, some are not. And if you do your due diligence, really what we're doing, I guess, on the business side of it, is we're doing due diligence when we meet with somebody. We're finding out where are they at, what's their knowledge level, where do they want to be, and is where they want to be in the time frame they want to get there realistic. Because if you go from a raw piece of property to 200-inch deer walking around, and I want that next year, you've done any type of hunting, you probably know that's not going to happen. Or, you know, I want to do this or I want to do whatever it may be. You know, there's just animals and habitat are the same. They take time. It doesn't happen overnight. There's no fairy dust. I wish there was, but there's not. So. Okay, next question. Again, we're doing most of the talking. I want to hear from y'all. Even though I've been doing most of the talking at this point. Who hunts? Do you, the ones that don't hunt, do you not like it, or you just never had the chance? Or do you not agree with it? Do you haven't had a chance? But you're open to it? Awesome. I don't like shooting animals. I support it. I just don't want to do it. Good. You're like my wife. (laughs) Thank God she doesn't hunt, because I can only imagine what it would cost me over the years to take her hunting as well, too. But I have taken my daughters and then later my grandkids as well too so uh, I will tell you this about the ladies in this room I would as a guide on a property I would much rather take a lady hunting anytime as opposed to, to a man they're more attractive to look at they smell better <laughs> they're more pleasant to be around in most instances and they're absolutely deadly killers the female of the human species is truly a killer Way better shot than most men. They're better shots than most men. Yes, ma'am. I just want to say my husband will not take me hunting. I've never been hunting, but he said that uh, I'd scare all the animals off because I can't no. stop talking. He just put you in a higher blind further away. No. My advice, I used to do seminars up, up north and here in Texas as well, too, and talks, the title of which was, was Never Take a Woman Hunting. And I loved it because all these ladies would come in. I mean, they're just looking at you, beaming at me. How dare you say something like that? So I'd lead them on just a little bit. And then my hope there was, just as what I said, the, the human female of the species are, is, is a natural-born killer. They're, they're such that they're, I'm sure there's some remorse after they take the animal or some of that. And I think everybody who hunts has some of that within them as well, too. And you give thanks for that animal for giving its life so that you have sustenance to continue with with your life. But I know in taking women hunting and or taking men hunting over the years, I've managed a lot of different ranches and set up management programs and set up hunting programs and worked on the financial side of things as well too. Take a guy hunting, and uh, you know he's going to sit there and he's sitting with him and just 
big deer walks out, and all of a sudden his heart rate goes up tenfold. His breathing goes, <gasps> you know, the gun comes up, and bang, and he shoots. Well, he shot there because he closed his eyes before he pulled the trigger. The deer was over here. And like, I get him. I go, no. Uh, <laughs> Just barely <laughs> Take a lady hunting, and you're sitting there, and, and you're, you, you know you visit a little bit, and we talk in deer blinds. I mean, there are times when you have to be quiet, and there are times when there's nothing wrong with talking, actually. Uh, might even attract a deer because they're going, what in the world are they saying? <laughs> kind of thing. But you put a big old deer out in front of it. A lady deer walks out, and you go, ma'am, that, that looks like probably like the one that you might all consider taking. They go, oh, that one that's got all that pretty thing sitting up on top of his head? Yes, ma'am, that'd be it. Rifle goes up. No emotions. Safety goes off, bang, deer goes down. No emotions at all. She just killed an animal. She's happy, but she's not really showing it. And then you get to start walking to that animal, and all of a sudden her knees are doing this. I've often said if I could have a feminine trait within my body, it would be that because I'm one of those that gets really, really excited. But I've seen that happen so many, many times. The other thing is, and we're getting off the subject here, but over the years I've done a lot of different talks and seminars where we took an animal apart. You know, all life on Earth depends upon the death of another organism, directly or indirectly. Regardless of if you're here today, if you eat you're responsible for the death of many, many organisms. That being the case, what I would do is we would show how to eviscerate a deer. And a lot of times I had kids from 3-year-old to 8, 9, 10-year-olds come around and do that because I wanted to talk to them about what deer ate, you know, what this was. In so many instances, it's the little girls that are right there. They're cuddling in, in all this. Go, what's that? What's that? And you look around and little boys are standing there going, oh, my God, kind of thing. So that tells me a whole lot about the female of our species. So guys, if you ever get married or you have a girlfriend and you take her hunting, you better not have an ego because as you just mentioned, I heard you say, you're, you're going to be out shot, you're going to be out hunting. It's just the nature of a human female. So, Well, females deal with, y'all deal with pressure and fear way better than men most do. Most of us, we show it, we start that shaking immediately. You can hear it in our voice. Now, women, y'all are much better. Any, any of you who've hunted know when that time comes to grab a gun or grab a bow, adrenaline kicks in. It's something you cannot prepare for. I mean, but in, in every scenario, a woman, in my opinion, Larry Grief, deals with it way better. They deal with it. I mean, I've said it. I sit and stand with them multiple times a year. I have big passion for taking people, introducing people to hunting. And the women will sit there stone cold the whole time. The guys will, I've seen, like you said, I bet if I take five guys a year hunting that are brand new, four of them will miss the first shot. If I take five women, all of them I won't even have to track. The animal will be right there where I'm standing. Every single time, without fail. Now, I actually, I don't think I've ever taken a female where she missed. Ever. Y'all, y'all process adrenaline way better than we do. So, questions? Okay, I'm so sorry. I have a question about feral pigs. Oh, certainly. <laughs> My second passion. Tell me about it, because we've got a, like, okay, we've got a bunch out in our neighborhood, and I told my husband, I was like, I'm going to go out and just kill them, but I want you to deal with the aftermath, and he won't. 
But what's your thought on all that stuff? I'll let you go first. In the aspect of killing them or the aspect of them in general? Because you can't really damage them, right? Because there's too many. Well, I mean, you could... You could helicopter, you could trap. You know, the, the best way to manage them, it, it, you know, it is a good hog-proof fence on, on your property. But they, they they grow so fast, the best thing to do is just stay on the trigger. I mean, there, there's no magic pill to them. I mean, like, like, on, like on my place, um, the only way they can stay somewhat manageable and then I can continue in a lot of places we work is continue to advance other wildlife species is to build good fences and good pens where they can't get in, you know, and push them into areas where the, that feed, whether it's corn, whether it's protein, whether, you know, no matter what it is, they can't get to it ever. It's not even anywhere near them. So it forced them to the habitat and we put as much pressure on them as we can when they show their face. But as for stopping them, it's, I don't think it's never going to happen. It's, there's a couple theories out there on, on certain things. You know, they've, tr- they've tested a bunch of stuff. Um, the problem with a lot of it is is that, like the most recent one, it would, ira- it would kill them, but it has a secondary, the product had a secondary kill, kind of like a rodenticide. And so anything that ate on that carcass, it was going to kill that too. So that's not good. You can't do that. You know, there, there's a couple beliefs out there about some organic stuff, but really, in my opinion, unless Larry knows some research that I don't know, the gun, going back to Aldo Leopold, the gun's the, the gun's one of the best things for for a wild hog. That, that simply, there's there's been research and there's been things that have shown that you know maybe maybe feeding off, feeding wild hogs you know whole cottonseed because it'll completely neuter them the gospel build up, but at that point you can't control it you know the wild hog is a very interesting animal they were brought over by the Spaniards because they were easy to put on the ships they ate anything they gave them they reproduced very fast and when they got here they had actual swine herds that would take these herds of of hogs around a sow, a mature sow will produce two and a half litters a year so by the time she starts on that half litter, the, the gilts or the females in that first litter are already sexually mature and reproducing. So the reproduction on those things is unbelievably huge when you get right down to it. In North America, there are two types of habitat when it comes to wild hogs. Them what's got them and them what's going to get them because they are so very, very adaptable in terms of what they eat. I mean, I've seen hogs above timberline. I've seen hogs in Mexico in the most horrible desert you can imagine. So they're so very, very, very adaptable in all this. They're a blessing and they're a curse in a lot of different ways. They can be predators on fawns. They can be predators on calves, on lambs, on all these other things. Because they'll eat anything that provides any kind of nutrition for them. So they're vegetarians. They're they're where they have to be. They're carnivores where they have to be. And they're omnivores, of course, because they'll... They'll eat a little bit of any and everything. We're not going to get rid of them. So to me, we have to learn how to, how to manage around them. You can control them in certain areas for a period of time. But they're also extremely smart. And so when you start putting honey pressure on them, they'll move. 
if you start poisoning them, they'll learn very quickly that, hey, I, ain't, I saw Susie eat this one, and Susie ain't here anymore. So, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to eat this stuff. So they're so very adaptable and so very uh, intelligent when you get right down to it. Uh, I've often said that they're more intelligent than most of the, uh, the researchers that are trying to, trying to figure out a way to get rid of them. So to me, as Brandon mentioned, they're, they're kind of a curse and a blessing in the same way. They're a curse in that they destroy a lot of areas. Uh, on my little place, I can't drive anything across it because they, they pretty much have torn everything up that's there. But at the same time, by doing that, they disturb that soil to where now when the water hits, when the rain hits, the rain soaks in, which is creating all kind of the seed base. So kind of like that part of it, to be very frank with you also like the part that I enjoy wild pork to eat. So I'll shoot whenever the opportunity allows those pigs that are anywhere from about 40 to maybe 60, 80 pounds. And uh, am I concerned about most of the diseases? Not really. Not really. And that's coming from somebody who used to work wildlife disease. So to me, as long as you get that meat up to above 180 degrees, you're going to kill everything that's in there. So... Their meat is, is, is very, very good. People like organic meat, you know, or whatever that means, because I always said it didn't make a darn bit of difference whether you put something in here and fit it and, or let it free range. It's still organic meat. It's not reproduced meat, you know, artificially reproduced. So <clears throat> to me, you, we just have to learn how to, how to deal with them. Uh, and there's trapping. A lot of people do some trapping. The helicopter thing has become very, very popular. Uh, in, in terms of trying to remove animals, um, but they're here, and so we just have to learn how to deal with them. And as Brandon says, you know, put up fences, do some shooting. I guarantee, you if you started shooting some of those hogs that are where you, you're talking about, they they leave. Probably wouldn't take very many either. No, because like you said, no. they're smart. They're exactly. in, in in a lot of aspects. I truly do believe they're way harder to hunt than a whitetail because they really use that nose and they know how to use it. I've seen more pigs come into an area that a whitetail had just been, never know I was there, and those pigs knew I was there before they even got into the area. Yeah. And they just turned, took down the That smell is, is, is unbelievable. That's the reason they use them, you know, in Europe to find truffles that are five, six feet underneath the ground kind of thing. So their sense of smell is really good. Their hearing is pretty decent, probably a little bit better than ours. Their eyesight is probably almost on par of ours, although a lot of times you hear that they don't see very well. My personal experience tells me differently based on having spent a lot of time around them. But, uh, so they're here. They're, you think about it. They're, they're, they're running around the ground. They can. They have been known to hear and smell grubs up to two feet under the soil. Yeah. That's why they're going underneath. I mean, like, like on, on the H3 ranch, it looks like in a lot of places, like a bomb went off at the prickly pear. They, they go, I got prickly prairies, you can ask Larry, they're as big as this table. And they go in there and they, it's, it looks like a bomb went off. The roads are covered in cactus lobes like carnage. And they're in and they're out. And, and half time, you don't even see them. They go in and they'll, they'll clear a spot this big in one night. You know, but they're, they're also, too, I'm actually in the middle of writing an article about them right now, but Larry had previously told a story where they couldn't get a plow to penetrate the soil because the soil is so hard, yet the pigs were able to come in. And we're talking tractor, you know, a big plow, heavy, heavy metal equipment. But the pigs were able to come into that field almost every single night and root the ground up completely. That's pretty fascinating if you think about it. They're, they're, they're very, 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 very intelligent animals, very smart. and Very adaptable. Very, very adaptable. From Like you said, from swamps to deserts to mountains. 
it doesn't matter. They are very adaptable. And that what 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 a what a group of pigs eat in the mountains will be completely different than what they eat in, in the desert. And, and and you could take those pigs in the mountains and move them to the desert, and they'll adapt that quick. Just like their ability to go feral. You take a pig that you know FFA pig and you turn him loose on a ranch. Is everything about him will change? His hair will change. His tusks will grow. Everything changes. They'll go feral, just like a just like a goat or a sheep. They won't be that pretty pink little pig anymore. They're amazing. They just get a, they got a bad rep. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Come on, guys. I don't want to get in your personal life, so. Yes, sir. I got another one. Um, whenever I was looking on the website for H3, I noticed the map and the colored states where H3 has done business. Do you think that there's any opportunity to go into like North Florida or Central Florida in the future? In Florida? Yes, sir. I'll answer that I, I, quick, go ahead. if you want me to. Go ahead. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Florida is, is a great state, you know, and they're, you, particularly you look into the, 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 uh, the Mormon church owns huge amounts of wildlife land there. Yes, uh, I did some work with them many years ago and they, on several of the properties that they own across the country. And uh, so there are great opportunities there. They're, they're people, it, the COVID, let's, I'm going to address COVID for just a little bit. COVID was and is a horrible thing. But it finally made people realize that food doesn't come out of the grocery store. You know, and as a result of that, we have seen increases in fishing license and hunting license that in the percentage of rise that we have not seen in years. And so anywhere where there's land in the future, people are going to start looking at that as, as a wildlife source because a lot of those places there raise cattle, okay? If they're raising cattle, they may have a hog problem, so they're going to have to do something with the hog. But they're also going to have, if they do everything right, they're also going to have a pretty good deer population. So there's a tremendous amount of interest in hunting and fishing now that we have not seen in many, many years. So I think any opportunities, or I should say there are great opportunities when it comes to the economic side of that in whatever state there is, including Florida. And that coloration on the website is places that we either have worked or we are currently working in. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, if, if I'm talking to somebody who's wanting to advance their habitat and advance their wildlife and advance their whitetails, whether I'm going to get in a truck or I'm going to get in a plane, I'm headed your way. If your state will allow it, I'm, I, we will be headed your way. Because to me, it's a community. And it's a it's a, it's an, a chance to teach people and educate and help. It's all to, to us. It's about wildlife. It's about habitat. It's about the ecosystem. So if I can get on a plane and get to you or I can get in my truck and drive to you, I'll be there. Whether you're in Florida or New Hampshire or upstate New York, we'll be there. But there are a lot of opportunities out there now, and there will con those will continue. I've, I've felt better over the years. As I said, I've counseled a lot of students, and I've counseled a lot of young young people when they get into the wildlife side of business, whether it's from the writing side to the management, whatever. But I think we're hitting into an era where we're seeing a return to the land, and a lot more, particularly with some of the field of art uh, type things we have going on. Uh, I'm one of the three co-founders of the. Texas Wildlife Association, and through that we have, among other things, we've introduced like 70,000 individuals to hunting, which we, I'm sure our numbers will go up now with the way things are, but we've also been very instrumental in setting up the field of park thing, 
and that has been extremely popular, and it will continue to be as people realize that, you know, there's supply problems, the trucks can't get there, the shelves are empty, what am I going to feed my family? So the hunting and fishing side of things are going to be really important in the future in terms of having habitat in terms of both water and land to produce the animals that we're going to need. And it teaches people how to do it. I was I was talking last weekend. I was at the ranch for the weekend, and I was I was talking. There's a in Breckenridge, Texas. There is a processor there called Raised Game Processing, and, and I've known him for 15 years. The guy who owns his name is David Easley, and I have not been able I have not been able to take an animal to him in two years. And this last year, we took nine we took nine bucks off the ranch, and I was not able to take one single animal to him. Because every time he was shut down, and so he told me prior prior to uh, COVID, they were taking about 900 deer a month. When COVID hit, just in October, they took 4,000 deer. Last year, we're, you know, COVID's everybody's kind of pushing it away. We're tired of it. We're ready to get out. We're ready, you know, do our thing. Last year or this last year, same thing. He took. He was taking fifteen hundred deer a month in October, and then November hit, and he took twenty eight hundred deer. So he was shut down. He said, "I have no room. No." He they expanded into and it, they expanded with extra freezers, and then you every from Abilene all the way past Throckmorton, there wasn't a processor one taking animals. You know, and that that's just the increase in people hitting the woods. You know, I, I've always said, and I get slapped on the hand a couple times. A lot of times you're way better off to pick a deer up off the side of the road that's been hit by a car and eat it than you are to get something you buy at the store that's stamped with USDA. You know, but the increase in conservation, the increase in hunting, and, and I'm sure COVID scared a lot of people with going to the store and not having meat and all that stuff, but it's pretty incredible the amount of people that are out there now getting out there. I would have never thought COVID would have inspired that, but, but it, it absolutely did, and it seems to be carrying on. You know, I think to some degree we're we're back to well, no, we're not back to normal. I don't know. We're we're back to a place where we can walk in places and do a little bit normal life. But it, it's really good to see after that 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 amount of people purchasing hunting license out there in the out out there in the woods. It, it, it's 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 going up. kind of funny that you say that. My uncle was a meat processor in southern Arkansas, and he had the same thing happen to him this year for the second time in a row. He had to shut it down. Three of the guys I know, they went and bought 18-wheeler truck or 18-wheeler beds and cut them off and put a freezer in them, and they're going around, and they'll do the processing right there for you, especially on the on the beef side of it. Yes, you know, they'll pull that cow up there, and they'll, they, they paper it up for them and everything. I mean, and the price of that's all gone up, too. I, I think all in all, it's it's a it's a very good thing. It's good to see that much interaction in the hunting. You know, because a lot of those goes back to conservation. You know, on the TPW side, they're, they're, that enables them to pump more money into wildlife movements and habitat movements and programs for youth and you know programs for needy children that want to hunt or you know a, a million different things that specifically in Texas that, that they pump those those funds into. What else? How much time do we have? Uh, 
I brought my cards. I'll give them to everybody. Feel free to ask any question you can. Um, I think we're going to chat a little bit about an intern program. And uh, I, I, we're always happy to answer any question, no matter what it's about. I don't care if it's about a bird. I don't care if it's about a deer. I don't care if it's about a plant. You know, the, the most important thing. Or the particular drink you like. Yeah. <laughs> yep. What was the name of the bar again? It's called the Crown Bar. There's one in LaGrange, and there'll be one in Round Top at the Halls as of March 19th. So. Thank you all very much for having us. I appreciate thank it. You, thank you, thank you, thank you. Truly appreciate the opportunity to be with you all this morning. Thanks for joining us around the campfire. To leave a comment or suggestion for an upcoming episode, go to Instagram at Larry Wysoon Outdoors. Please join me right here next week for another DSC's Campfires. DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon has also been brought to you by The Crown Bar in LaGrange, Texas, H3 Whitetail Solutions, Remington, Texas Wildlife Association, TRHP Outdoors, 